This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today my guest is Susan Piver. Susan Piver is a Buddhist teacher and the New York Times best-selling author of seven books, including The Hard Questions and the award-winning How Not to Be Afraid of Your Own Life. She teaches workshops and speaks all over the world on meditation, spirituality, communication styles, relationships, and creativity. In 2011, Susan launched the Open Heart Project, an online meditation community with nearly 12,000 members who practice together and explore ways to bring spiritual values such as kindness, genuineness, and fearlessness to everyday life. Susan is a contributor to the Sounds True anthology, Darkness Before Dawn, Redefining the Journey Through Depression, and she's also the author of a new book called Start Here Now, An Open-Hearted Guide to the Path and Practice of Meditation, a book which presents meditation as something more than the self-help technique du jour, meditation instead as a path to love, joy, and courage. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Susan and I spoke about her experience of the darkness of depression having a softening effect. We talked about the connection between meditation and an open-hearted way of being, and why it's so important to her to teach meditation in a Buddhist context instead of in a secular context. We also talked about how to work with resistance in meditation practice, and what it means to Susan to live each day with bravery. Here's my conversation with Susan Piver. Susan, you're a contributor to a collection of essays that Sounds True has recently published called Darkness Before Dawn, Redefining the Journey Through Depression. And even though you and I have known each other for, oh, probably a couple of decades, actually, before I read your contribution to Darkness Before Dawn, I didn't know that you were someone who dealt with depression in your life. And so right here at the beginning of our conversation, I wanted to find out what it's like for you to come out, if you will, in your writing and teaching as someone who has really been challenged by depression. What's that like for you, this taboo topic? Oh, well, it's, um, I feel happy to talk about it, which may sound strange, but I don't feel like I'm talking about it for anyone's benefit but my own. (laughs) So I, I'm just curious about it and being able to write about it is a chance to really let that curiosity expand. And, you know, it's, 
I personally respond best to teachers who I feel like are probably not pretending and also who don't hold not pretending as a kind of flag that they wave all the time. So anyway, it was just, I feel completely com- okay about it. I, I don't feel shy about it. Um, it's just something that's there. So I know that that is the case for so many people. And it's just kind of ordinary. Mm-hmm. The book Darkness Before Dawn focuses on this question of redefining the journey of depression, not just thinking about it as some condition that needs a medical solution, but understanding it in a broader way, in a nuanced way, and even as part of the spiritual journey. And so I'm wondering for you, how do you frame depression in your life? How do you think about it? Hmm. Um, well, for me, fortunately, the kind of depression that I've always experienced is short of a medical emergency. So that, you know, once it steps over that line, of course, that's a whole different topic. And I just, I know that you and I are not talking about that kind of depression, but the short of a medical emergency depression is when it's happening, of course, it's terrifying. It's horrible. It's, uh, deadening. But at the same time, I can't help but notice that the darkness of depression is has a kind of softening effect. It lowers my resistance to other people's presence and their their feelings. It seems to actually increase my ability to be insightful about other people, other people's suffering, and it makes me cry more. But I also feel, I believe, and find that when any kind of acute period is over, I'm also able to laugh more. And I, I don't want me to sound trite, but there's something about depression that brings along with it a the capacity to both laugh and cry more and feel more and create more and love more. And if, if you can sort of soften to it, it creates an opening to something very rich and human. So I see it as my strange friend who comes and goes and who is rarely invited. But when he or she appears, I feel like, okay, well, this is my guest now. And how can I be hospitable to this presence? (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious, why do you think that depression is, in general, a taboo topic? Something people often, you know, don't want to admit that they suffer from? I think... Especially for us, I'd say in the United States in particular, it's taboo because we suffer from what I call uh, image poisoning, Mm. which is the sense that the way things appear is the way they are. 
and there's a real hesitance or refusal, even in some instances, to just look at things below the surface. And our culture, you know, this is all my, obviously just my opinion, is just built on accomplishment and productivity and efficiency and achievement and beauty and youth and accomplishment and money and things that move very, very fast. And depression does not move very fast. It is incompatible with productivity and, you know, physical perfection and accomplishment. It it just is incompatible with those things. So I think I think people feel like, oh, if there's depression in the room, we have to take our eye off of this happy, perky future that we all seem to be aiming towards. And this could be an obstacle. But that's how it seems to me that it's... But I think in other cultures, you know, it's not that way. It's particular for us, I think. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? It does. I think you're pointing to something really important and a real huge bias in our society that has us all lopsided and strange and yeah, you know, I, running around with smiley faces. I, I don't. I know men and women equally get depressed, but there's a kind of, doesn't matter whether you're a man or a woman, there's a kind of masculine bent to our view of how an ordinary day should be spent and what the accomplishments of a lifetime should look like, that they should start small and build to something, some kind of crescendo. And, and this depression makes you go in circles. It is not, it, it's sort of, it, you disembark from any conveyance that proceeds in a linear fashion and you just sort of are wandering. And just like with any wandering, you may get in trouble. You may discover something that you hadn't known was there. You may end up somewhere. But there's this quality of journeying in depression that is the the focus. And in our everyday life, journeying is seen as some sort of uh, thing to be gotten through in order to accomplish a certain end. And there is no accomplishing of an end in depression. It's just a kind of funny journeying. Not funny, ha-ha, obviously, but strange. Mm -hmm. The title of the essay that you contributed to Darkness Before Dawn is The Sadness in Bliss. The Sadness in Bliss. And that's a curious title. I'm wondering if you can unpack it a little bit. Yeah, well, I'll tell you why, where that came from. But I can't unpack it because I don't really know, understand. But it is an extraordinary contemplation for me, and I, I hope for anyone who encounters this notion. And this is something I heard. I heard this from a student of Chogyam Trungpa. Uh, that what, during a public talk, someone asked him, what does bliss feel like? And he said, to you, it would probably feel like pain. And that was a really arresting moment to me when I heard that. To you, it would probably feel like pain. So all notions of it means you are untouchable, implacable, non-attached, quote-unquote, whatever that means, that you're some kind of, that pain doesn't hurt you, that sorrow doesn't affect you, that discomfort doesn't make you uncomfortable that's, you're in some sort of super, super happy state all the time. He was saying, I imagine, that's not 
it actually would feel like pain to you. And to me, in my attempt to unpack it, there's some sort of wholehearted and whole-bodied journey into the heart of compassion in a relative sense, relative compassion, that it's without hesitation. So your heart opens so thoroughly to this world, to all beings, to the animals that suffer, to the people that suffer, to your own suffering, that you kind of blow through hesitation and resistance to sorrow. And that state could be called total pain. But perhaps it is also bliss. I don't know. That's what I that's what I got on that. What do you think? Can I ask you? Uh sure. Well when I heard that statement to you the experience of bliss to a an average mortal, whatever you might call it, would be pain. What I thought was that bliss itself is probably so roaring, so intensely alive, you know, vibrating at such an incredible volume of intensity that it would probably hurt. It would probably be experienced as pain because you wouldn't be able to process it or metabolize it or feel it. It's just so huge. So it would actually hurt. Yeah. Kind of like too much love or attention actually would actually hurt because you couldn't take it, you couldn't process it, something like that. Mm -hmm. So anyway, that was yeah. that was where I went with it when you said that. Yeah, I I think that I think I thinking along the same lines that there's some kind of com utter commitment, and that not where I differ from you is not that you're opening would be so intense that it would start to hurt. I would change that. I think of it as the opening would be so intense that you would miss what, what I call bliss, you call pain. You would be feeling it, but you would think, oh, what is this? This must be pain. But actually it's bliss. You're mistaking it is sort of one of the things that made me think. Yeah. It seems like in your work, this, I might call it the redemption of sadness or the seeing the value of sorrow and sadness is something that is really important to you. And I wonder if you can talk more about that, why that's so important to you. Yeah, thank you for asking. And, and it's the reason that I was so happy to be invited to contribute to this um, book. Um, I guess growing up, I was, you know, I was always like, heard, why are you so serious? Or, or there's nothing to be sad about. Everything's fine. Or why don't you just smile? And it just seems so stupid to me. It's just such a stupid way to be. And I have spent so much time just in my own inner world in a state of sadness of some kind. And I just started to think this can't be only a problem. There must be something to mine here. There must be something of value. So 
I've written also a lot about heartbreak, heartbreak from romantic love. And when your heart is broken, when you're in a kind of depth of sadness, you feel everything. There are no no walls that you can put up. They just crumble immediately. So you, you feel everything, your own joy and sorrow, and also the joy and sorrow of everyone you meet. And you know, without doubt, that the only thing that matters actually is love when you're in a state of deep and profound sadness or heartbreak. Only, only love matters. And, you know, in our world, I mean, you and me, someone who can feel everything and knows that love is the, is the highest um, value is called a bodhisattva. So it kind of puts you ass backwards into this kind of bodhisattva-like way of being. And all the advice uh, in the, of the self-help books about sadness, especially from romantic causes, interestingly, sort of fall along two lines. One is, you know, you go, girl, <laughs> kind of just go out and be awesome and don't forget you're awesome and that person wasn't good enough for you and okay, that, there's, you know, that's cool. I don't know that it's that helpful, but yeah, you are awesome and you could have fun and don't forget those things and so on. But the other kind of books are, there's something wrong with you and you caused this to happen. You attracted it by having some kind of unresolved wound. And until you resolve that wound, you were going to attract this over and over again. And I don't think that's helpful. I, I don't think it's true. And I don't think it is useful at all. And further, all of the books are about how to get and keep love. None of them are about how to give love. But when your heart is broken or you're in the state of profound sadness, the moment you start to give love to someone else by just simply turning your attention to them, and taking them in and letting yourself be touched by their presence, whether you like them or not. That's what I call love. A sense of empowerment begins to return. And so instead of trying to fix it, my interpretation of the Buddhist teachings is stay there and stabilize yourself in the state of sadness or heartbreak. And then you know, you'll really be doing something amazing. You'll be capable of, you know, a lot. So rather than fixing it, which I never seem to be able to do. So that's, I guess, one reason why so much of my writing and thinking has been about sadness and depression and so on is I never could fix it. And then when I found these teachings that were like, actually, you know, don't fix it. It's a source of power. It's not a problem. And here are some practices by which you can stabilize yourself in this open-hearted slash broken-hearted state. I thought, well, I guess I must be a Buddhist because I really want, I really want that. I don't want to share it with others. Your new book, Susan, Start Here Now, An Open-Hearted Guide to the Path and Practice of Meditation. You make a connection between the practice of meditation and this open-hearted way of being. And I wonder if you can explain that connection for our listeners. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
this explanation is based on personal experience and observation. That when you practice meditation and you place your attention on the object, which is the breath in, in the case of my book and my practice, and then your attention starts to stray into thought, uh, you know, that will always happen. You just sort of let go and return attention to the breath. And in this very simple process, you are doing more than just paying attention to the breath in the sense that you are softening toward your experience. And whatever arises, oh, I'm awesome, I just had some genius idea, or I'm I'm a horrible animal, I just had the most barbaric thought, doesn't matter. In all cases, you simply let go and reconnect with a sense of spaciousness and return your attention to this flow of breath. And so you sit with your experience from moment to moment, from breath to breath, and it's horrible and it's terrible and you know, most often it's just sort of boring, but you stay. And, and this is also called softening. You soften toward yourself, which is an astonishing and radical act. And then it seems that because of the way we are constructed as human beings, that softening toward self automatically rouses a kind of softening toward others. And when you soften toward others and you know how to deal with the fear of that, at least somewhat, you further soften to this world, to your world, and your ability to lean into your experience in the in the Pema Chodron context of that phrase expands, blossoms. So it's your heart opens through this just very simple practice of breath awareness meditation, it happens that your heart opens. And when your heart is open, all these other things we were talking about earlier, laughing, crying, loving, having insight, create, being creative, those things come too, as well as more sadness and more discomfort. So it, it's called, I would say, being human as opposed to superhuman. So... That's why I, I, I connect meditation to open-heartedness. Now, I'm curious what you think about, I don't know if you've had this experience, but meeting people who are tremendously open-hearted and who have never meditated. And, hmm, what might be going on there? I'm curious what your thoughts are. Yeah, I don't know. Karma, uh, excellent parenting, good luck. Uh, I don't know. I... I think I'm jealous of them. I'm happy for them. I'm happy for our world that they exist. I'm delighted and thrilled to speak to people like that. But I am not one of those people myself. I, I have to cultivate it. So there are those who come by it naturally and those who don't. And this is a good practice for those who don't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then I guess an, another related question is, I have met many people who have meditated a lot, but don't seem particularly open-hearted. And I don't know if perhaps they're approaching their meditation in a non-softening kind of way, or I'm curious to know what your thoughts about that might be. Yeah, that's interesting. I think it's totally possible 
to use meditation as a self-help tactic. And I'm not saying that these people who you who you have met are, because I, I don't know them, but I've met people too. But, but and my guess is that it's there's some kind of agenda connected to the practice. And of course, we all come to meditation because we want something. It, nobody's like, oh, my life is perfect. I think I'll just learn to meditate. It's because there's some pain. There's some something to be met that is hard to meet. And that's great. And some people come to it because they just, you know, want less stress and a better night's sleep. And some people because they want to become enlightened. And all of that is completely cool. But not while you're practicing. And I think sometimes the over-application of an agenda to meditation kind of drains the magic. And there are things that I think help keep it in the realm of the spiritual or the sacred or whatever you want to call it that uh, rouse more readily this, the quality of open-heartedness. But, you know, and also there's always just karma and psychology that one can't explain in the way people are. But I guess the point I want to make is it could be self-help or it could be a path to awakening. And it's a matter of your intention and motivation, I would say. I'm curious about that rousing of open-heartedness. I think that's actually what I'm really curious about, is mm-hmm. how in your life, whether it's on the meditation cushion or in your life in general, how that happens for you. Um, how that happens for me, it's just, it's surprising. I, I, I While I'm meditating, and I've been practicing for over 20 years, it's really pretty boring, just to be totally frank. There's, you know, I think like everybody, I'm sitting there going, oh, breath, breath. I wonder what's for lunch. Oh, my toe just hurt. I wonder if I cancer the toe or what if I hadn't said that thing 12 years ago? Okay, breathing, breathing. It, that's pretty much what it's like when I'm doing shamatha vipassana practice. You know, sometimes there's more spaciousness and sometimes there's less. But during practice, I never quite know what the hell I'm doing, except I try to apply the technique as, as well as I can. But when I look back over my life, I see that everything has changed. So there's some, some mysterious mechanism at work that magnetizes, uh, I don't know what, more love, more insight, but not while I'm meditating. I don't know if that's even the question you were asking, but for me, it's in my post-meditation experience, in my actual life, I see that it just happens. And the more I, if I ever try to make it happen, or it do, it doesn't work, it happens. It's a super trustworthy practice, and and also, and I think I, I said this in start here now is I was talking to my meditation instructor. This is probably ten years ago. We were at uh, Shambhala Mountain Center in Colorado, and the recording was going to be made in a building, in a room in a building that had heretofore only been used for certain sacred practices, but it was deemed the best acoustics. So that permission was granted to use this room that was only used for a certain practice to make a recording for, by people who don't do that practice, for whatever reasons. And I was involved in uh, helping make the recording happen, and I was talking to my meditation instructor, who just happened to be there, and I said, is it okay? Can we just do this? How do we not, you know, screw up the whole sacred thing that's happening in there, the mystery of 
that practice. I don't want to just barge in on something that I can't even see. And he, he said, oh, no, oh, it's no problem. So it's simple. Just make offerings, request blessings, and dedicate the merit. And that's all he said. And But to this day, you know, probably a decade later, I still find that those three steps are very, very profound, making offerings, requesting blessings, which it doesn't have to be religious or weird, and dedicating the merit or offering the value of your practice to this world keeps, seems to keep the practice on the open-hearted path as opposed to the self-improvement path. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, clearly in all three of those steps, we're connecting to something bigger than ourselves. I mean, there's this connection, okay. this opening, and yeah. Tell me what you mean by making offerings. Mm-hmm. Well, if you walk into a meditation shrine room or church, or there's usually some kind of table with things on it. In the case of a Buddhist shrine room, there could be bowls with food in them or rice or scented water or flowers or pictures, incense, all of that stuff. And those could be called offerings. And they tend to focus on the sense perceptions. But if you are uh, not a Buddhist or not religious, it's no problem. You can still make offerings. And that that's a sense of rousing in yourself, just a sense of who you are right now. Do you feel happy? Do you feel sad? Do you, you feel full because you just ate? Do you feel grumpy, bored? Whatever it might be. Just how, how do you feel right now? And let there be a sense of offering that. I, that itself is also a kind of opening. And you just sort of offer yourself to your practice, like you would offer yourself to a conversation with someone you love, like show up, basically, and open yourself to it. That's a good way of making an offering. And it is a kind of opening and a kind of gesture of generosity at the same time. And practice seems to really blossom under such gestures. Now, let's say someone listening is saying, I'm offering to what or to whom? Like, what am I offering to? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You could offer to whatever you want. You could offer, if you're a Christian, you could offer to Jesus. If you're an atheist, you could offer it to nothing. If you're a, you know, Buddhist, you could offer it to your teachers or so on. But it's to- I think it's totally a sign. You could offer it to the highest wisdom. You could offer it to the spirit of the earth. You could offer it to something you don't know, but that you think or hope might be there. You could offer it to God if you believe in God. Whatever you hold the highest. And if it's a mystery, that's even better. So not talking about beliefs, which tend to create obstacles in spiritual practice, but just a sense of connecting with what you love, what you aspire to, what you feel in your heart or your body is an aspect or the essence even of goodness itself. Even if you can only touch on it in your mind for a moment, make a teeny tiny connection and then let the offering be to that. Um, And sometimes it just feels weird and awkward and you don't know what you're doing and it's 
sort of a superficial thing, but sometimes, some days it isn't. And it's a practice in and of itself. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive three free gifts just for visiting us. Go to soundstrue.com backslash free. That's soundstrue.com backslash free. And now back to Insights at the Edge. You know, Susan, as I as I know you're aware of, many people today teach meditation outside of any quote-unquote spiritual context. It's become secularized and it's being taught in corporations, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, simply as the practice of mindfulness will benefit you in X, Y, Z ways. But you seem to be drawn to teaching meditation in a Buddhist context and practicing in a Buddhist context and keeping that context intact and as part of how you're communicating about meditation. And I'm curious to know why that's important to you. <laughs> it's funny, when I've been giving talks lately, I, I just have been starting, <laughs> I'm sure it's not very pleasant for the audience, but, but just going, Buddha, Buddha, Buddha. You know, like, let's just say Buddha. It's not a big deal, y'all. Just it, don't be scared. We don't have to strip away these the ancient wisdom that is there with the practice in order to not be scared of the practice. Just put on your friggin' big girl and big boy pants and look at the fact that this ancient wisdom exists. You might not like it. You might not want to partake in it. That's cool. But let's not pretend that this thing just came out of a lab and is some new life hack. It actually makes me kind of pissed off. So No, I, I know. Get, I'm, I'm, that, I'm, get into it. I'm enjoying this. Please. <laughs> okay. It's not some kind of like life hack du jour to become a better whatever. I mean, if you, after we are talking, go on your computer and just Google the mindful and then just type any letter of the alphabet. You will see, you know, the mindful artist, the mindful anteater, the mindful archaeologist mindful bartender, the mindful bus driver, it just, okay, cool. Let's all recognize that there's a thing called mindfulness and that it's friggin' awesome and that science has proven that it's awesome so we can all relax with the idea that it's awesome. However, the reason I really don't want to uh, divorce the spiritual wisdom from the practice is A, because it's really useful and beautiful and astonishing and every adjective we could possibly think of and more, but B, because your practice will not be sustainable without it. And I know that that may sound like, a, I don't know, I'm not trying to be fundamentalist here because I, I don't, it doesn't matter to me if you believe in anything or not, but I've, I, probably you have had the same experience of talked to many people in corporations, some even enormous ones that have put a lot of money and effort and time into trying to create mindfulness practice in the people who work there. 
and who are finding that it is not working. And the reason I believe, this is my opinion, the opinion of myself, is because there is no path quality to it. It's presented as a self-help technique that will make you a better leader, and it will. It will totally do all the things that people promise that it will. But unless there is some sense of deepening of path and of community, of dharma and sangha, whatever, however you define those things, it will not continue. That's my observation. It's not my, I'm not threatening that. It's just, I see that. And I believe that the reason for it is because even though meditation and mindfulness are being presented as some awesome thing that you just can sit down and do, which it is and you can, at some point it becomes difficult and it becomes boring and it becomes confusing. And without other people there who are also trying to experience this confusion and boredom with you or who are experiencing it, you just get lost. And so I feel in our rush to de-Buddhaize this practice, which is a Buddhist practice, we are throwing out like a shit ton of babies with the bathwater. And the value is become of the practice is married to the study of the practice and not just the execution of the practice. So it uh, never surprises me when someone says, oh, we started a mindfulness program, but it's not working because there's no path quality. And, and then people think, I'm just making all this up, who these people are, I don't know, but nonetheless, people think, oh, well, we can't say the B word or we can't make it religious. And those are the only two choices totally science-based and research-driven and no spiritual woo-woo connected to it, period. Or, you know, we're all wearing robes and shaving our heads and chanting, you know, Om Mani Padme Hum. And there is totally no need for either of those extremes. Because that's one of the great benefits of genuine wisdom is that it applies in all situations. And I, again, I don't mean to sound fundamentalist about it, but there's totally a way, and I hope, I mean, I sort of have fallen into this as being my life's work, that there's a way to just talk about this wisdom that is not dumbing it down, nor is it religifying it. I know that's not a word, but it's just saying what it is. And then if you resonate with it, good. Now it's your wisdom and just try to do something with it. But it's not scary. Have I ranted? No, I think you're clearly passionate about letting the spiritual dimension and the path quality. Tell me a little bit more when you use that word, the path quality of meditation, making sure that that's intact, what that means to you. Well, when you start to practice, you encounter yourself. And it can be confusing and uh, disorienting because you see how many thoughts you have and how many feelings you have and how sensitive you are and how vulnerable you are because open-hearted is just a synonym for vulnerable. So you invariably encounter your own vulnerability and that causes many knee-jerk reactions without some sense of guidance. And guidance doesn't mean weird guru 
telling you what to do every second of the day. It means there's actually wisdom of 2,600 years of people who have also felt that vulnerability, and this is what they found worked. Here's some options for you. Okay, now you're starting to work with your vulnerability. Oh, that's interesting, isn't it? That tends to also come with greater insight, greater compassion. Is that what's happening for you? Oh, cool. If it isn't, that's also cool, interesting. Okay, now what tends to happen for most people when they develop some connection to their own vulnerability, their own inability to find ground, is a kind of greater connection to the mystery of their own life also seems to arise. And that comes in things like auspicious coincidences and strange synergies and and also just ordinary insights, seeing things that have always been there that you've never seen before. Without some sense of how to relate to those things, it all falls apart. There's no container for it. So by a path quality, I mean some kind of container. And I'm a meditation instructor, and two, and it doesn't mean that I am a Buddha. It just means I've been meditating for longer. So I can help someone who's been meditating for less long. Without that, it's like it becomes super ungainly. And then you, a person invariably thinks, oh, this isn't working. I'm not good at this. Never mind. And it's very hard to fight that, never mind, because it is confusing. It's like trying to get one eyeball to look at the other eyeball. And again, the, the by path quality, I just mean some sense of there's a progression in, in this practice. We know some people who could descri- describe that progression and who could offer you some guidance when you meet this juncture or that juncture. And I really believe that's the difference between a sustainable and an unsustainable practice. Mm-hmm. I know as a meditation instructor, Susan, that you work a lot with people who hit all different kinds of resistances to the practice of meditation or things they call resistance. And I'm curious to know what some of the pith instructions are, some of the key instructions, if you will, that you found helpful. For example, people who say, you know, I feel drawn to the practice, but I just don't seem to be able to do it every day. It just isn't working for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I would first question if that's resistance or not. Because, yeah, sure, nobody, we all have trouble with the routine for whatever reason. Just like we all have trouble sort of sticking with, I don't know, like going to yoga classes or whatever we know is good for us and is good for us and feels good. And we think, oh, why don't I do this all the time? It's just, I think that's normal. I don't think that's resistance. Maybe for some people it is. And maybe there's some ratio of resistance to just ordinary inability to establish a new habit. But I I think actually with this one thing, I know that this isn't the only kind of resistance and I, I could say something about resistance in a moment, but this notion that an inability to to practice regularly is because you have some kind of psychological obstacle, I would question that and find out, is that true? Maybe it is. But for my students and my world, more often than not, what I see is that's not the whole truth. And that it's actually really hard to practice by yourself every day or most days. 
And that some sense of community, even though I hate that this is true because I don't want to be in any community, some sense of community actually makes the difference. And if you go and sit, just simply by that, what I mean is just go and sit with other people sometimes. Go to some center near you, or if you hate that, then just have an arrangement with a friend where you, uh, hey, let's sit together from 7 in the morning till 7.15, you know, Mondays through Fridays. Just knowing that that other person is there, that actually creates, you might find your resistance disappear, your so-called resistance. But then there are other resistances that one encounters, everyone, I would say, as the path progresses. And that could look like anything from just feeling bored all the time, which, and it is boring, I'll just re uh, re-emphasize that because it is, or it's like a writer's block. It's kind of a, you feel that there's just some kind of obstacle between you and the practice. And the the counsel that I've received and that I offer is make that the object of your practice in a sense. In other words, once again, lean into that obstacle. If your obstacle is boredom, then just, just sit and be bored. Feel boredom. Where is it in your body? Not the story of boredom or not the uh, agitation of, I have so many other things to do, I shouldn't do this. Feel that agitation. Like really let it sort of blossom in your body and actually let that be the object of your practice instead of your breath. And feel what you're calling resistance, which may or may not be. Probably it is and it isn't at the same time. And work with it. And then when or if you feel ready in any particular practice session, let go of that felt feeling as the object of your practice and return attention to the breath as the object of practice. And if you need to sort of uh, dance between those two points, then fine. But the idea here is don't work on it, quote unquote. Feel it. Be with it. Also, in my, you know, in my world, this is called relaxing. I don't mm-hmm. mean relaxing like watching Real Housewives, which I also like to do, but it's being with is the same thing as relaxing. And my teacher, Sakyam Lipamapache, said once in a talk that the more he practices, the more he feels that the entire spiritual path can be expressed in one word. Of course, we were all, we were all on the edges of our seats. And that word was relax. And it is it is a very profound and pithy instruction. So relax with resistance and also get some advice. It's really good to have a meditation instructor. You don't have to be and you have any beliefs. It's really good to know someone who knows a little bit more about the practice than you. That's what I mean by that. Does that answer your question? It does. Uh, thank you very much. I want to circle back with something that you said that really got my attention, which is you offered this phrase, image poisoning, as a phrase I'd never heard before, but it immediately made sense to me as something we suffer from in our culture and projecting images of ourselves, wanting people to see us in a certain kind of way. And I'm curious to know more in your own life as someone who's worked in 
years ago in marketing and packaging and presenting, whether it's products or creating a marketing plan for a website, all of that, how you understand kind of projecting images in a way that's not poisonous, but yet is positive and has integrity. How do you understand mm. that? Yeah. Um, I think I might have made up image poisoning. Uh -huh. Read it somewhere, but I think I made it up. But it's, again, I got, I got this instruction from my teacher on one of the very first products I ever created, which is probably 15 years ago now, maybe even longer. And it was a little book that presented meditations by different teachers and some writings on those practices. And I asked him, can I do this? It, I'm not, will you allow me? But is it acceptable? Because this was a long time ago. And now there's billions of books and CDs about meditation, but or audio recordings. But in my understanding, meditation instruction is a transmission rather than an explanation. And the transmission quality comes from the teacher who was taught by someone, who was taught by someone, who was taught by someone, in other words, who is in a lineage. And that's powerful and important. And if it's just on an audio recording, will that transmission quality be preserved? And he then gave me my marketing strategy for the rest of my life, basically, at least so far, which is when you're offering spiritual teachings or anything to do with health, well-being, I mean, I'm adding that, anything that you think you would like to be helpful to others, which in our cases, is that's our, those are our jobs. Those are, that's our wheelhouse. The, most, the first step is to create confidence in the mind of the student or the reader or the audience, which made total sense because if they're not confident in you, then they're not going to listen to you. They'll be checking you or whether they're reading you or hearing you or washing you with soap or you know, whatever the product is, it doesn't matter. But if the person doesn't have confidence in the person who's purveying it, then the relationship will not arise. So that was the first step, but there's two more. But the first, oh, you want them to be confident. So you want what you're offering to look good, not because you want to be beautiful, although, but because beauty inspires confidence. And I don't mean superficial beauty or, or whatever the kind of beauty is appropriate to whatever you're creating. You want it to be elegant, whether that it's sort of down-home elegant or super sophisticated elegant. You want it to be spelled right. You want the color combinations to be you know, harmonious or disharmonious, depending on what the product is. In other words, the way it looks is important because it creates confidence. And that confidence creates an opening. So that automatically took packaging and marketing for me out of the realm of, you know, whatever, trends and trendiness. So the first step is to create confidence. And how do you create confidence? <laughs> By offering something real. And what is real is something that you yourself know. Not that someone told you, not that you read, but that you yourself know. So that has been a beautiful formula for me as a teacher and also as someone who marketed things and tried to present things because we are all presenting something. 
and you can do it from a, you know, stupid, narcissistic, manipulative way, or you could do it, and it might even look exactly the same, from a sort of soulful, caring, uh, refined way. And it's possible. It's really possible to market and present in a way that's not poisonous. And I, I find for me, this formula, establish confidence, offer something real, which is what you happen to know. So if it's offering, if it's trying to present a product, you know, even if it's soap or something, you know, what do I know? What do I really know? And, and I'm not going to lie. I'm just not going to lie. So I may have to look hard to find that thing that I know that is valuable, but I'm not going to stop until I do. And if I can't find it, then it's just not for me. It's not my product. I'm not going to, I can't work with it. So I found it to be very spacious, but also very clear direction. Does that, does that resonate with you? Yes, I like it a lot. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. And I also want to circle back. We started our conversation talking about redefining depression and how to work with depression. And in reading some of your writings about that topic, you offer a line from Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, uh, we've referred to him already in this conversation, a meditation master from Tibet. And it's a, a sentence that I have always found hard to understand that students of Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche use a lot. This sentence, just cheer up. Just cheer <laughs> up. Why don't you just cheer up? And I thought, Susan's the person who can explain this to me and help me understand it. <laughs> yeah, just cheer up really pissed me off when I heard it. I was like, what the, what are you talking just cheer up? You don't understand this complicated situation that I'm feeling and the reasons for it, blah, blah, blah. And I'm definitely not going to just cheer up. And it sounded so superficial and stupid to me. However, my experience at Chagam Rinpoche through his writings and through his students, because I never met him personally, was anything but superficial and stupid. So I'm like, okay, well, this cheer up thing deserves a closer look. And I think, you know, the short explanation that I've arrived at is cheer up is the same thing as cut. Cut. Whatever you're feeling, cut. And that doesn't mean slice or hack. It means kind of let go. And can you do that? No matter how profound your grief is, or how deep your rage, or how numb your depression, can you cut, even just for one moment? Can you just not have it? And me, okay, comes right back, say, but could you try it again? And I'm saying this, asking this, that you ask yourself out of curiosity, not as a method for changing things. But can I? And when you can, because you can't always, but in those instances when you can, a kind of lightening up happens. You just kind of lighten up because you literally have just sort of dropped some heavy burden or some hot coal. And so there's a sense of, oh, cool and relief. And I think that's my interpretation because I will never, there's one thing I know about Chagim Trungpa is that I probably will not ever know really who that guy was 
Mm-hmm. But this is my interpretation of what he meant. It's just cut, experience the cool air that you would experience if you walked out of a hot, stuffy room into some you know, beautiful day for a moment. And that's called cheering up. Does that... Does that work for you when you're feeling depressed? Can you for, do that? For, for a second. Yeah. And I'm not saying I can do it forever, but it's kind of like a muscle. And it, 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 I, can, I can often get confused that it means ignore or, you know, disavow. But it's, I sort of think of it as a way of taking care of myself. So I can't, oh, this is so much. I can't really carry, I don't want to carry it for one more second. Well, okay, let me just give myself a breath. And I'm not talking about reestablishing my whole sense of being in a different realm. I'm just saying while I'm in this realm, whatever it is, can I let go? And what does that feel like? And then what's happening now in the next moment, I don't know. You also offered an instruction in one of your writings about Just Cheer Up, which I really liked a lot, which was intensify, intensify, intensify. So whatever you're feeling, even before you let it go, intensify, intensify, intensify. And then at the you know height of this intensification of the feeling state, then drop. Let it go. Yeah. I thought that was a very good instruction. Oh, good. Thanks. Yeah, it's it's the same in if you ever go to some sort of exercise class. Do people still say exercise? Does it have some other cooler word for it? <laughs> if you go to work out, say, um, and sometimes a ther- teacher or a therapist in physical therapy even will say that they, you know, raise your shoulders, raise them as high as you can, like. Just hold them, hold them, hold them, and then drop. Let your shoulders drop. And so that's the same exact sequence that you can do with your own feeling state. You know, when you raise your shoulders, you actually sort of increase the tension in your shoulders. And then there's a sense of when you let go, like, oh, fresh blood and oxygen and whatever else happens in a person's body is refreshed. And so you could try that technique with your inner state and don't take my word for it, of course. Just try it and see what it feels like. Susan, I want to end our conversation talking about a topic that you've also written quite a lot about and something I'm really interested in, which is the topic of bravery and being brave in our lives and what that means to you on an everyday basis, being brave. What does that mean? It's a kind of ultimate open-heartedness. And it's a kind of ultimate vulnerability. And, you know, vulnerability obviously is thought of as a state of weakness, but it's a state of openness. And to me, a warrior, a brave person, is not someone who has it all figured out and knows what they believe and has their techniques for applying those beliefs in every area of life, but someone who sort of steps out the door in the morning, metaphorically, without knowing, 
what's going to happen or who they are or how things will go, but being willing to meet the experience of their own lives, literally from moment to moment. That, to me, is a warrior. That is courage. And it doesn't look like confidence necessarily, you know, in a superficial way. It doesn't look like arrogance, certainly, or someone who has it all figured out. It looks like someone who is curious and sharp and funny and sad. And, you know, I like being around people like that. Tell me, uh, curious, sharp, funny, and sad. The sharp part <laughs> I found interesting. What's the sharp part that comes with well, bravery? When you sort of let your belief system fade, or your agenda even. Of course, we all have to have beliefs and agendas, and we've got to get things done, and everybody has to be very practical and so on. But on another level, at the same time, when you sort of can let all of that go, what you're left with is a capacity to actually be present to what you're experiencing and what you're feeling and what is happening around you rather than what you think about those things. And because you are present, you can be sharp because you know where you are and you know what's happening and you're not lost in some other zone. So therefore, you have a sense of immediate comprehension. This is, you know, I'm talking about, not saying this is me particularly, but what I notice is you have this presence of mind and presence of heart and courage, which is a kind of sharpness, a willingness to step into something that you're not sure of, that only comes from allowing yourself to be vulnerable and open. Otherwise, it's, it's like a fool's courage. Did I, did I, does that make sense? Very much so. I've been talking with Susan Piver. Thank you so much, Susan, for the conversation. And thank you for being a contributor to Sounds True's collection of essays on redefining the journey through depression, Darkness Before Dawn. Susan has also written a new book called Start Here Now, an open-hearted guide to the path and practice of meditation. It's so great to talk to you, Tammy. Thank you so much, and thank you very much for inviting me to contribute to that compilation. It was an honor. Soundstreet.com, many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.